The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Intern at Lawfare with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 6, 2024. Since November, the Yemen-based Houthi militia has launched 25 attacks against vessels in the Red Sea. The United Nations Security Council has condemned the attacks, and in a joint statement released this week, the U.S. and 13 other countries warned the Houthis that they will, quote, bear the responsibility of the consequences should they continue, end quote. Meanwhile, U.S. officials are becoming increasingly worried that the attacks and any potential retaliation may jeopardize months of talks between the Saudis and Houthis on ending Yemen's civil war. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from December 11th, 2018, in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Dan Byman and Gregory Johnson to discuss the conflict in Yemen, its origins, its current state, and the role Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United States have played and are likely to play moving forward. After the conversation, Molly Reynolds and Scott R. Anderson sat down to discuss Yemen-related legislation currently churning on Capitol Hill and what it could mean for U.S. involvement in the conflict. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is The Lawfare Podcast for December 11th, 2018. Last week, Benjamin Wittes sat down with Greg Johnson, a former member of the U.N. Security Council panel of experts on Yemen and the author of the book The Last Refuge, Yemen, Al-Qaeda, and America's War in Arabia, to do a deep dive on the conflict in Yemen, its origins, its current state, and the role that Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United States have played and are likely to play moving forward. Joining Ben and Greg was Dan Byman, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution Center for Middle East Policy and Lawfare's own foreign policy editor. After Ben and Dan's conversation with Greg, Brookings fellow Molly Reynolds and I sat down for a conversation about Yemen-related legislation that is currently churning on Capitol Hill and what it may mean for the future of U.S. involvement in the conflict there. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 373, The War in Yemen and Congress's Response. Greg, let's start with how on earth one becomes a specialist in Yemen. I don't know a whole lot of people who specialize in Yemen for a living. Uh, You're one of a very small number. Tell us a little bit about your background in this subject and how you came to focus on it. 
Right. Well, mostly I'd say it's a series of wrong choices, and um, that's how you. That's how one, anyone ends up in Yemen. For me, uh, I grew up in Nebraska. I went to a small liberal arts school there, Hastings College, and during my time, I studied abroad at the American University of Cairo in in two thousand, which for me was just a fascinating experience, fascinating time to be in the Middle East. But when I was there, I realized that where I really wanted to be was Yemen. So after some time in the Peace Corps, I got a Fulbright Fellowship, went to Yemen in two thousand and three, and it's been the place that I just keep. Going going back to again and again and again. And why? I mean, like when most Americans think of Yemen, at least before the current crisis there, people have tended to think of a sort of breeding ground of al-Qaeda trainees who then pick up and travel to uh, Afghanistan in the run-up to 9-11 and end up in Guantanamo, where Yemen produced a wildly disproportionate number of the detainees. What was the fascination of the place for you? Well, it started with the book. It started with this great book by Tim McIntosh Smith, who's a British guy, Oxford educated, went to Yemen in the early 80s and just stayed there. And one of the great things about Yemen when you get there is first, the geography is is incredible. There's uh, amazing mountains as well as deserts. I spent a lot of time in Sana'a, which is the capital city up in the mountains. When you get there, you, there's the Yemenis are incredible. Incredibly warm people. Even now, when you um, when journalists go to Yemen, they'll talk about people who are who are starving, who are in the midst of famine, and yet they'll they'll share what little they have with people who are coming in. And I found that to be the case when I went there in 2003. Yemenis have this great ritual where you have this very big lunch, um, often uh, what's called salta, which is this sort of stew that's um, cooked by this guy who's up on a raised platform with this giant um, cauldron that he then dishes out into all these. Uh, little bowls that are cooked over open flames. So you eat that and it basically gets what the Yemenis would say, it gets your molar hot. And that um, that prepares you then to chew kot, which is this fantastic and I would encourage to any researcher, although it's, I believe, illegal in the US, but um, it's it's available readily in, in Yemen. And it, throughout the afternoons, Yemenis sit around and they talk about politics, they talk about history. So for a young graduate student, for a young researcher, sitting in these kot shoes for six to eight hours, with a captive audience talking about all different aspects of Yemeni society was something that really appealed to me and and something that is still some of my favorite memories to this day. All right. So let's talk about how the current situation, before describing the contours of it and how bad it is, let's backtrack and talk about how it developed because it wasn't that long ago that Yemen was thought of as Yes, in dire poverty. Yes, uh, cauldron of of some uh, a lot of radicalisms, but also in some ways a promising story in Arab world governance and reform. And so, how did it collapse? How did it? You know, what what's the story that brought us to our current? terrible moment. Right. So I, th- I think the the best place to pick this up is really with the Arab Spring. So the Arab Spring protests happened in, in early 2011 in Yemen. They were going on in Cairo. I was actually living in Cairo at the time. They were going on obviously across the Middle East. And what we had in Yemen was the long-serving president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who'd been in power since 1978. He'd overseen unification of the country in 1990. He'd also seen the country through a civil war in, in 1994. 
he was forced to um, to really step down at the beginning of 2012, and he stepped down in this agreement between the U.S., the U.N., Saudi Arabia, um, that basically shifted power from him to his to his vice president, this guy who had the nickname in in Yemen as the statue, which um, really I think speaks to both his character as well as his charisma. But the one problem with this was that it allowed Ali Abdullah Saleh to stay in Yemen as what they called a private citizen. But of course, somebody who had been doing politics for more than three decades wasn't just going to stay out of politics. Yemen had this National Dialogue Council where they went on from about um, 2012 to 2014. But when this was supposed to sort of create the way for, for a new Yemen. But the problem in Yemen is when that the old order broke down and by weakening Ali Abdullah Saleh, there were so many groups with guns, none of whom had enough power to impose their will upon the rest of the country, but all of whom could act as spoilers. And that's what happened in 2014 when the Houthis didn't like the results of the National Dialogue Conference. They essentially took their guns back into their hands and they moved on Sana'a and created sort of a slow mo- slow-moving coup d'etat and took the capital in late 2014, and that really instigated the the current war we're in. Uh, let me add, when people looked at Yemen in 2012, 2013, this was seemed like a policy success in many ways. Uh, this was a negotiated settlement at a time when you either had regime overthrows or you had civil wars. So Yemen seemed like that perfect, happy triumph of diplomacy. And at the same time, it was a counterterrorism partner. So there was a sense that it was a U.S. partner on a key issue. There was a sense of a diplomatic success. But it was also what I think has plagued the United States in much of its Middle East policy in multiple administrations, which is removing an old regime is much harder than putting a new one in. So there was a transition from the old, but not a building up of the new. And the problems Greg identified just got worse, but we've seen them in multiple countries where new players have come in, the stables are not structure are not strong, and as a result, we have chaos and violence. All right. I want to talk about the different components of the chaos and violence because, you know, there's a lot of different actors here. Greg mentioned the Houthis. Let's start there. Dan, what is a Houthi? Uh, there are different ways to spin this depending on what your ideological perspective is. There is a community in Yemen that is a branch of Shiism, people refer to as Zaidi. Uh, they're also a historically strong community, although in recent decades, much less so. And they have geographic concentrations in parts of Yemen. And uh, they have a strong communal identity, but people haven't thought of them as Shia in the sense of how people think of the Iranians as Shia. Uh, much of the interpretation has often been uh, more akin to Sunni Islam, and a lot of the identity was tribal and communal. And so this was, though, very much a bounded religious community. And over time, though, what that has meant has changed because people have looked at it in much more of a sectarian sense in recent years than was ever the case. But that perspective may actually be somewhat permanent, where that identity was perhaps grafted upon them, but it may be sticking. I'd like to hear what Greg has to say, because I, I know he's thought about this a lot. 
Yeah, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. When I first went to Yemen in 2003, this was before what what's known as the Houthi war started, and those started in 2004. And Dan's exactly right. There wasn't this sort of sense of Shia Sunni. It was Zaidi Shafi, and Zaidis and Shafis. Zaidis are the the Shia, and and the Shafis are the Sunnis. They prayed at one another's mosques. They intermarried, but there was also a there was a concern in in Yemen at the time that what was happening in Iraq, this increasing sectarianization, was going to going to happen in Yemen as well. And I think that's what we've seen over the last fifteen years or so, to the point where now there is the the Shia Sunni split. Al Qaeda plays into that. The Houthis, Iran, people sort of project their images on on Yemen of what they see outside throughout the rest of the Middle East. It was not that long ago. That Yemen was two countries, right. North Yemen and South Yemen. To what extent do the current divisions in Yemen map onto the old lines between the North and the South? Like, are we still fighting that division, that civil war? To what extent are these tribal uh, and other divisions that are completely separate from that? And to what extent are the current factions a sort of amalgamation of all the historical uh, like what does a map of the of the Yemeni conflict look like from a from a factional point of view? Right. So for myself, I think the best way to think about what's happening in Yemen is to think of it as as three separate but overlapping wars. So you have the war against al-Qaeda and ISIS. That's US-led. The Saudis and the Emiratis are US partners. They're taking part of that. And AQAP and ISIS, these two groups, these terrorist groups, they're both active and they're both present in Yemen. Then you have this sort of regional proxy war where you have the Saudis and the Emiratis, both of whom have troops on the ground. The Emiratis have more. Most of the Saudi troops are sort of along the Saudi Saudi southern border. They're fighting what they would call um, an Iranian proxy. And this is the Houthis, which Dan just spoke about. So now we have AQAP, we have ISIS, we have the Saudis, we have the Emiratis, and we have the Houthis. And then the third war is what I would term the the local civil war. And this is where you have all these different groups and factions in Yemen. So this includes the Houthis. When, when you look at them, they're really a Yemeni group with Yemeni grievances. You have what you just spoke about, Ben, which is the southern movement or the southern Transition Council. These are individuals who remember Yemen unified in 1990. There was a civil war in 1994 that basically allowed the North to take over the South. The South wanted to secede. The North prevented that. Now these individuals um, in the Southern Transition Council are attempting to secede again. There's the Yemeni national government, which is largely in exile and doesn't have much, much power on the ground. And then there's an assortment of different militias from tribal militias to essentially that basically run the, run the gamut from tribal militias to almost criminal gangs. Uh, let me add, what's amazing, especially on the local civil war front, is the fluidity of the different groups and the boundaries. So you'll see individual factions or individual leaders, often due to power rivalries, going from one to another, fighting against the people that they just worked with the previous week. And most famously, a year ago, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh was killed after exactly he flipped sides and didn't work out. But this was someone who was really a master of trying to find a new ally every week and was able to do so until until the very end. Dan, this war became the major humanitarian catastrophe that it is because of Saudi Arabia's intervention in it. And I'm interested in why Saudi Arabia cares. 
Yemen is a densely populated country, but it is small. It is on Saudi Arabia's border, and I suppose they can argue that what happens in Yemen doesn't necessarily stay in Yemen, but it does seem like an awful lot of people to kill for a relatively marginal uh, strategic advantage, if any, that they're getting. So how do the Saudis look at Yemen and this conflict that makes them willing to tolerate the consequences of their intervention here? The Saudis often viewed Yemen the way America viewed Cuba, right? which is that for some reason it just mattered a lot to them, much more so than its strategic importance. And it got under their skin when Yemenis and Yemeni leaders didn't do what the Saudis wanted to do. So we've always seen the Saudis either intervening or at least meddling in Yemen at different historical periods. And they've always had the problem that most outsiders have in Yemen, which is the Yemenis are happy to take their money. But in the end, the Yemenis are not going to do what their foreign patrons want them to do. And so this was a problem for the Saudis, but things got much worse for the Saudis with the Arab Spring. And to go back to Greg's point of that was a key transition point. And you had a couple different dynamics happening simultaneously. One was you had the emergence of these new governments, including some linked to the Muslim Brotherhood. And we saw a shift in Yemen where that seemed at least a possibility. And that was especially meaningful for the United Arab Emirates, but also for the Saudis. But also, the Saudis became obsessed with any Iranian presence anywhere. And as the civil war heightened in Syria, they were afraid Iran was effectively opening up a new front in Yemen. And the current crown prince staked his personal reputation on this war. This is one of the first things he did. He put a lot of resources into it, a lot of publicity. And so he is personally vested in it. And withdrawing um, short of outright victory is a humiliating defeat for him. But the problem for Saudi Arabia is that it's really already lost in Yemen. Iran is much stronger than it was before the Saudi intervention. Its position is politically and militarily stronger. The Saudis are blamed for most of Yemen's problems by much of the world, at times even to the point where it's not true despite the considerable culpability. So Saudi Arabia does need to cut its losses, but it's politically and in its own eyes strategically very tied to the conflict. Yeah, I, I think Dan's exactly right. I mean, this is a war that the Saudis started in March of 2015. This is when Mohammed bin Salman, the current crown prince, was minister of defense. And he had this idea that we could go into Yemen, Saudi could go into Yemen and basically defeat the Houthis, which Saudi Arabia considered to be sort of Hezbollah South. I think that was a bit of a mistake. And it's, I think, as Dan pointed out, it's become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that the deeper Saudi Arabia gets into the conflict, the stronger the alliance between the Houthis. And, and Iran becomes. And so now, after almost four years of war, Saudi Arabia is at this point where it doesn't have a lot of good options. It can withdraw completely and allow the Houthis to declare victory, which is non-negotiable. That's not something that Saudi Arabia wants to do. It can insert ground troops, but that would be a long, very bloody, very difficult conflict with no guarantee of success. Or it can continue to do what it's been doing for almost the past four years, which is carry out airstrikes and hope something on the ground changes. And that's what we've seen happening. All right, so let's talk about the Houthi-Iranian relationship because the whole the whole international predicate for Saudi's involvement and frankly for US support for Saudi involvement in Yemen has been the idea that the Houthis are uh it's basically a proxy war against Iran, right? And that this 
is a great, uh, you said, Hezbollah South. Um, and there's always this subtext, which you've both articulated in different ways, that maybe maybe the premise isn't quite right, that though the Iranians do seem to be behind the Houthis in some level, it's not a Hezbollah-type situation. So to what extent is Iran a player in Yemen? And to what extent is Saudi getting it right when they say if the Houthis take over Yemen, that's a big win for Iran? And to what extent is this all actually sort of self-delusional nonsense justifying a, a very costly war? I don't know which of you is the right one to direct that to in the first instance. I'll plunge in and then ask uh, Greg to to expand or correct. Uh, so the Iranians have an almost ideal position in Yemen, which is they can fight to the last Yemeni and there is very low cost to the Iranians. Right? So the Iranians can try to put more weapons or ammunition in. The Saudis, the UAE, the Yemenis will all bleed, but the Iranians won't. And it's in terms of resources, it's relatively efficient. It's not massive resources going over. And the Saudis are pouring billions into this conflict. Um, and in the court of world opinion, it's the Saudis who look bad. So from Iran's point of view, they're, they're sweeping the board here. Now, to go to Greg's earlier point, if the Saudis were to pull back, the Houthis would be left standing. They would be not necessarily dominant in all of Yemen, but certainly a major player in much of the country. And that would be seen as a Saudi loss. There's no question about that. But the Saudis are kind of stuck with a bunch of bad options. But the only problem is every day the Saudis are in there, every day they're bombing, the Houthis need the Iranians more and more. So what began as a very limited alliance of convenience is becoming more extensive. And the Iranians do try to indoctrinate the people they work with. They do try to spread their teachings. And we've seen little indications that that's sticking. And I'm concerned that that will become a lasting problem for Yemen if the Saudi intervention continues. Yeah. So, I mean, these rumors and these – the allegation of the Houthis being an Iranian proxy is something that goes back almost 15 years to the beginning of the Houthi wars in 2004. Ali Abdullah Saleh at the time said, look, the Houthis, they're an Iranian proxy. The only problem or the only difference was that at the time, no one believed him. Even as late as 2009, um, there's a U.S. diplomatic cable from then U.S. Ambassador Stephen Sesh who said, look, we've looked at this extensively. We see no evidence that Iran is supporting the Houthis at all. And this was in 2009. At the same time, Saudi Arabia had a council, what they called the Special Council for Yemeni Affairs, and they had a quote that also showed up in a U.S. diplomatic cable that said, we know that Ali Abdullah Saleh is lying about Iran and the Houthis, but there's nothing we can do about it. And 2009 is really the year that things changed in, in Yemen, and that's when the Houthis went over the border into Saudi Arabia. They were involved in their own separate war with the Yemeni central government. They came into conflict with a Saudi border patrol, and they took a few people captive and they killed a soldier. And Saudi Arabia got sucked into then fighting the Houthis in 2009 and 2010. It went very, very poorly for Saudi. Even on, on YouTube today, you can see these pictures of these sort of barefoot, wild-looking Yemeni tribesmen overrunning Saudi military camps on, on the border, driving off in new um, Saudi military equipment. Saudi Arabia was embarrassed, and at the same time, Iran took notice. And that was really the first time in 2009 that Iran started to be attractive, attracted to the Houthis for exactly 
exactly the reason that Dan said, which is that it was a low-cost investment. And then the Arab Spring happens. Iran starts sending a little bit of material to the Houthis. But it really changed with the beginning of this war when I would argue that what we see between the Houthis and Iran has become now uh, an alliance. The Houthis don't need Iran to survive domestically in Yemen. What the Houthis need from Iran is they need things like ballistic missiles and so forth in order to project power into the Arabian Peninsula, into Saudi Arabia in a way that they could launch a, an Iranian missile at, say, Riyadh and actually make it to Riyadh because the Yemeni armory um, or the Yemeni sort of their their missile depots, they didn't have missiles that would go that far when the Houthis took over the state in 2015. So you see Iran smuggling weapons in and we, I was on the, the UN panel of experts and we looked at this quite extensively last year, but there was no repercussions for, for Iran um, once that happened and once that was sort of exposed that Iran had been smuggling weapons into the Houthis. Um, the Security Council, thanks to a Russian veto, didn't um, didn't talk about that at all. All right, let's talk about the humanitarian situation. It is now fairly routine to refer to this as the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. How bad is it and what what are the major features characterizing it? Yeah, it's it's quite bad and I I think in many ways it's even worse than we hear and it's it's worse than we can get our minds around. Yemen's a country of about 27 28 million people. The World Food Program estimates that 8 million are on the the verge of starvation and 18 million are food insecure. And those are big numbers, but it's it's tough to really grasp actually what's happening there. I think there's been some great reporting recently. Um, De Declan Walsh and Bobby Worth of the New York Times, as well as their uh, photographers, uh, Tyler Hicks, have taken just some incredibly stunning photographs of what's happening in Yemen. And really the problem in Yemen is not that there's not necessarily food in Yemen, but that there's the food is outside of the um, – people can't buy what's on the shelves. And you have shortages because the Saudi-led coalition is concerned that – well, there's, there's really two concerns that the Saudi-led coalition has. So they're concerned that Iran is smuggling um, weapons and material into the Houthis. So Saudi Arabia has what – to a large degree amounts to an economic blockade of the country. So they want to keep Iran out, but they also seem to want to really stir up civil unrest to the point that people will rise up against the Houthis and fight the Houthis from within. I don't think that's a very workable strategy because the Houthis, as bad as they are at governing, and they are very bad, they largely get a pass in Yemen because of the airstrikes that are coming from Saudi Arabia and and from the, from the Emirates. So – by and large, the famine is caused by the Saudi blockade of the country. That's that's a large part of it. There's also decisions that the Yemeni central government made. Um, for instance, in September of 2016, Yemen's internationally recognized president, President Hadi, decided to basically split the central bank. So there was a central bank in the capital of Sana'a, but that was under the control of the Houthis. And they were- And, and just to be clear, for like the Houthis are largely in control of most of the country at this They're point. They're in control of about 30% of the country, but that has about 70% of the population. So they're in control of the northern highlands. And they're effectively what they've done is they've um, sort of lopped off the top of the state, installed their own people, but largely kept the infrastructure that existed before they took control. And 
The problem, though, is now you have competing governments in one place. So you have the Houthi government, which is on the ground and has control in the northern highlands, and you have the Yemeni central government, which doesn't have much control and is largely in exile. And to match those two governments, so you have two ministers of defense, a Houthi minister of defense, a Yemeni minister of defense, and so forth, you also have two central banks. So the decision was made by the Yemenis, I think, in consultation with the Saudis and the Emiratis, not to do things like paying salaries of civil servants who were living under Houthi control with the idea that you could sort of starve the Houthis out and um, create um, civil unrest. The problem this, of course, is that now it's the Yemeni civilians who are really the pawns in this war. So there's not pressure on, um, not political pressure domestically on the Saudis. There's not a lot of political pressure on the local Yemeni government uh, and the Houthis. Their leadership is largely insulated. It's the civilians that are paying the price for this war, and they're paying it on the humanitarian front as well as paying it uh, on the battlefield. Dan, I'm interested in the question. It, it's fairly routine in the in the political left to describe this as a high degree of U.S. culpability for the situation in in Yemen. And I'm interested in your evaluation of to what extent that is a reasonable judgment, to what extent the U.S. is an active party in the, in, in the conflict, and where the major U.S. policymaking decisions with respect to Yemen happened. So a lot of U.S. policy was really, I will say, we can determine by decisions that were not made. So if you look at Yemen uh, with the start of the Saudi intervention, it happens at a time when U.S.-Saudi relations and U.S.-UAE relations are very, very tense. The Saudis and the Emiratis are very angry about the Iran deal. They feel that the United States has betrayed them during the Arab Spring by siding with for example, um, the anti-Mubarak protesters in Egypt. So there's tremendous anger at the United States. So when they want to go to war in Yemen, there's a U.S. government sense of U.S. interests in Yemen are low. If the allies want to do it, let them do it because the last thing we want is another fight. And in fact, we'll support them in small ways. And the International Crisis Group gave what I thought was a very nice report describing this as a U.S. yellow light. So there was kind of a general cautionary, you know, we think this would be bad if you did it. But at the same time, through providing logistics, providing intelligence, refueling, and not using U.S. influence, it was permissive. And that influence is actually tremendously important, especially for the Saudis, because their air force depends extremely heavily on the United States. They depend very heavily on the United States for munitions. So it would be very hard for them to continue the war if the U.S. actively opposed it. In terms of culpability, there's a lot of culpability on the Yemeni side, right? These are local actors killing each other. There's culpability in Riyadh. There's culpability in Abu Dhabi. Um, but I would also say there's some in Washington, and it begins with the Obama administration. It continues certainly with the Trump administration, which is the United States is not using its power to promote peace, to promote stability, and in particular in the case of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, to protect its allies from themselves. The military outcome of this war, the idea that bombing was going to somehow dramatically change the Houthi calculus and liberate Yemen, was relatively absurd from the start. And I don't really know anyone in professional government circles who believed it. 
So the United States knew its ally was making a mistake but was willing to overlook it for diplomatic reasons. But the consequences are not a surprise and the U.S. should be using its power to try to help Yemen but also to help its allies. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. 
And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I, I mean, I think this is the situation is a genuine mess, but as you've both said in different ways, it wasn't that long ago that people looked at Yemen and saw not exactly a success story, but uh, a success story under the, the rather in, incredibly difficult circumstances. And Hattie was thought of as a very plausible partner. What does the right answer now look like? Uh, if there were a government in the United States capable of making policy, which is not our strong suit right now, and the, they called you and said, what should we be doing in Yemen? What does a good Yemen policy right now look like? Greg and then Dan. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question. So I think – and picking up on, on Dan's point, and this is something that both the Obama administration and the Trump administration have argued is that US troops aren't involved in operational conflict. But I would, I would push back and say US troops are very much facilitating the conflict that's going on in the combat and the fighting that's taking place. So what the US I think needs to do is – First, you have to realize that this is a war that's going to continue because there's very little – right now, it's easier for the parties to continue fighting than it is to make the rather difficult compromises of peace. And we've talked about that on the on the Saudi side. But it's going to be difficult. The Houthis will probably end up in any, under any sort of a, a peace agreement with less territory than they have right now. And so both sides are going to have to make some really difficult compromises. Right now, it's easier and it makes more sense for them to continue fighting because there's very little pressure on them. There's not a lot of pressure on the Houthi leadership. They're by and large insulated from the shortages associated with this war, whether it's food or, or medicine or water. By and large, they're not the ones who are being targeted and being killed in these airstrikes. There's not a lot of pressure on the Saudi regime at home. There's not Saudi body bags that are coming back and you have people pressing Mohammed bin Salman. So what's needed to end this war is actually sustained and I think concentrated international pressure. And that, me that means going far beyond just, say, a UN special envoy and some presidential statements from the Security Council. That means that the US has to use its leverage on Saudi Arabia and the UAE and say, look, the first step, we don't know how this ends, but we know the fighting has to stop now. And then there has to be pressure brought to bear on on um, the Houthis, Oman, Iran can do this. I know the UK has just had some consultations with Iran. Iran has said repeatedly that it wants a seat at the table when it comes to negotiations 
tensions in Yemen. That's something that has been a non-starter for the U.S. But in order for the fighting to stop, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take sustained international pressure on all sides that they realize that the costs of fighting are greater than the costs of coming to the peace and making these difficult decisions. Dan, what does sane Yemen policy look like? Uh, I'm thinking more short term, so I agree completely with Greg. And my realistic ideal for a year from now, which I realize is probably unattainable, would be that the outside powers greatly diminish their interventions. So there's less weapons, less money going to the fighting parties, there's less bombing. That That is ideally stopped completely, but hopefully diminished. At the same time, the blockade is ended and there's massive aid going through. I mean, the numbers Greg gave are should be utterly terrifying to any caring human being. Right, they're so big; they're in some ways hard to get our heads around. But this is has the potential, the quite real potential, to be one of the great killing moments in modern human history, where lots of innocent people are going to die very, very soon, while we do nothing. Right, and this is preventable, and we are doing nothing. And then the third would be to encourage local ceasefires, to have parts of the country that are not at war, to have parts of the country that are open to aid, where there is some functionality, and hopefully those can be expanded over time. That's all going to be a tall order and together even taller. But to me, the imminence of this is tremendously important. Yeah. And I... The real concern that I have is that the, the war that we've been talking about is the Saudi-led war against the Houthis, and that's the war that the international community really wants to stop. I think in Yemen, unfortunately, the worst of the fighting is yet to come. The worst of the fighting happens when the regional and international powers withdraw or pull back, and the local Yemeni fighters, then it's a mad scramble for power, and you have all these guys, uh, all these groups, none of which are strong enough, but all of which can act as spoilers, and they're fighting one another. And that, that I think, is A, the fighting will be worse. And I'm very worried that at that point, when it becomes just a local Yemeni civil war, that the international community will just turn away. And as long as it's just Yemenis fighting and killing other Yemenis, then nobody really cares. So let's let's pause over that for a minute because the United States has, uh, I guess we learned, less leverage with respect to Saudi Arabia than a lot of people thought we did. But it has some. And the Iranians clearly have some leverage at this point with the Houthis. But once you address that, what is the policy lever that anybody has to reduce that or throw blankets on the conflagration that you're describing? Yeah, that's that's going to be, um, I think, very, very difficult to, to do. Obviously, it'll be a, a changed international environment. Um, my hope would be that there would be a lot of money coming in from the outside, particularly from Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, who bear a large responsibility for breaking Yemen into so many different pieces, that they would put in a lot of money and that it would be channeled through international organizations that could use that money to alleviate some of the suffering and hopefully convince people to come to the table and agree to some sort of power sharing dynamic. The problem with that is that Yemen has been down this road before. So after the Arab Spring, they had this big national dialogue conference, but when in one particular group, in this case the Houthis, didn't like the results. They just took up their their guns and essentially took the state. And so it becomes a very a very tricky and a, and I think a, a very tense moment in which to bring about change and in which to forestall any sort of conflict. Dan, is there in the long run 
uh, and by long here I mean the small number of years, not the not months. Is there any scenario in which Yemen isn't a kind of regional patchwork of warlords and armed militias? I mean, is there any national agreement or solution that provides for something better than that? Or is the best case scenario that we have that and not too many people are starving and being killed? In my view, the realistic best case is a low-level patchwork or a low-level civil war with a patchwork of actors where they're fighting over specific areas and specific resources rather than a conflict of all against all. Uh, the Yemeni state was always very weak. Local uh, militias, tribes, um, regions were always very strong. And that's become much worse. That disparity has grown tremendously as the central authority has collapsed and as weapons have fled the country, as groups have mobilized for the civil war. So short of a massive international intervention, which is, of course, not going to happen, I just don't see a scenario where Yemenis are going to come together in a complete sense, though I can hope for less violence rather than more. Yeah, Yemen is Humpty Dumpty. It's it's broken, and and nobody is going to be able to put it back together again. Not in the way that it was after unification in 1990. I mean, one of the sad ironies were um, we're recording this on the one year anniversary of Ali Abdullah Saleh's execution by the Houthis. He survived an assassination attempt in 2011. If he had been killed in that assassination attempt back in 2011, the country probably would have held together. The country would look much different. But by dying when he did, by dying in 2017, I think that removed the only individual who was capable of all sides sort of agreeing and the country holding itself together by his his death in 2017. So I just don't think there's any individual, there's no group who's going to be able to sort of form the umbrella that everybody else can gather around, think that they're going to get enough of the pie that they can be satisfied with. Just to close on that really depressing note, what is the fundamental division between the Houthis and the central state uh, to the extent that there is one. What is the thing that they're fighting over? Right. So the Houthis felt as though they were in danger of cultural and religious eradication. And they felt that because back in the 1960s, there was a revolution that overthrew the Zaidi Imamate, who was basically a, a religious and political leader who ruled in North Yemen. They, that Yemen then turned into a republic that was led by all these different generals. And in the 1980s, you had two different things happening. One was that the central state was very wary against um, Zaydis like the Houthi family and others. And so they were supporting their enemies, which were the Islamists. And at the same time, you had these traveling missionaries coming over the border from Saudi Arabia that were proselytizing to young Zaydis. And so the Zaydi elders looked at what they were seeing and they saw their young people converting to, to Sunniism and the Sunniism that's practiced in Saudi Arabia. And they saw the state aligned against them. And during the 1980s and 1990s, they felt themselves so backed into a corner that by 2004, when there was an arrest order on Hussein Badr al al-Houthi, the first leader of the Houthis, they felt they had to lash out. And that started the six Houthi wars, which then you know, led to this current war that we're in and led eventually to the Houthis taking the state. So they see this very much as an existential war that they have to win. And when it comes to this current war... The Houthis have control of the territory, so they think they can wait out the Saudis and anybody else because they have they have the land. We are going to leave it there. Greg Johnson, Dan Byman, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.
So Molly, we're sitting down today to have a little follow-on conversation to the conversation that Dan and Greg had uh, a few days ago about Yemen, introducing us to the conflict, to the context of Yemen. But we're here to talk about some other events that have been happening here in the United States Congress relating to the conflict. Uh, and it's so fast moving. In fact, we recorded this a few days ago and had to sit back down and record it again because things changed on the ground. It is Congress after all. Exactly. Things move fast in Congress occasionally. <laughs> so this time, the big kind of precipitating event that triggered this series of discussions of what are now a number of legislative items we're going to talk about was Senate Joint Resolution 54, which is a co-sponsored by Senators Murphy, Lee, and Sanders, a bipartisan product that uses a provision of the War Powers Resolution to try and direct the executive branch to withdraw U.S. forces from hostilities in Yemen, uh, except where those hostilities relating to are relating to al-Qaeda. So basically to try and get them, meaning the executive branch, to end support for the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. But it's a very unique procedural vehicle for that sort of action. Can you give us a little bit of a context on that? Sure. So generally in the Senate, there's no limitation on debate. Um, once a senator uh, is speaking on the Senate floor, uh, generally he or she can speak for um, as long as he or she wants. This tradition of unlimited debate in the Senate is what gives us uh, the Senate filibuster in all its glory and warts. Um, but there are some pieces of legislation where the Senate has elected to create special procedures um, that limit debate on that piece of legislation. And one of those um, pieces of legislation are these resolutions under one section of the War Powers Act. And basically what that section says is that there are certain uh, resolutions that can come to the floor of the Senate and debate on them is limited. Uh, and that has the effect of um, needing to only get a simple majority of senators rather than 60 senators um, to bring first the bill out of committee uh, and then onto the floor and then um, for passage. Um, and so that's what that's what we're talking about here. Recently, the uh, Senate took the first of these procedural steps um, and had a vote um, to discharge the resolution in question from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, it's expected this week that they'll start debate um, on the resolution. Uh, debate is limited to 10 hours. Um, there will be amendments that will have to be dispensed with. I think there are still discussions ongoing on the Hill on exactly what that amendment process will look like. There's a fair amount of concern because the section of the War Powers Resolution does not restrict amendments, um, does not require them to be germane. So there's, I think, some concern that we could be opening up a little bit of a legislative Pandora's box. And so I think there's some discussions ongoing about what exactly the amendment process um, will look like. And then once all amendments, um, whatever that agreement is, once any amendments um, have been dealt with, there'll be a vote. Um, and that will need just a simple majority of um, senators to pass. It's worth noting that kind of the politics on this have changed pretty significantly over the past several months. Um, so, you know, Scott, you and I started talking and writing about um, these this resolution on Yemen um, back in March. Um, there's a vote in March, um, and basically only 44 senators voted in favor of continuing um, to consider the Yemen resolution then. Two weeks ago, the vote um, that brought this resolution out of committee got 63 votes. So there's a lot, I think, that's kind of changed in the world that's meant that the politics of this issue in the Senate specifically um, have changed as well. 
So that's a little bit about kind of where we are um, on the procedure, what makes these the procedures for considering this Yemen resolution um, unusual in the Senate. But in terms of the substance, even if the Senate were to adopt this resolution this week, and even if the House were to also consider it before the end of the Congress, and we'll come back to that in a little bit, um, and the president were to sign it into law or the House and the Senate were able to override a presidential veto, it's my understanding from uh, reading your writing on this, Scott, that there, there are a lot of legal questions about what would actually happen um, even if this particular resolution made it all the way through Congress and um, through the White House. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Molly. Uh, the War Powers Resolution provision that this resolution relies on, which is actually added to the War Powers Resolution a few years after the main bill was passed, it basically is designed to create a narrow gateway for bills and pieces of legislation that have a specific purpose, and that is to withdraw U.S. forces from hostilities where there is not a declaration of war or specific statutory authorization. And there's a big question as to whether that encompasses the situation in Yemen. The Defense Department has said very clearly and been consistent for almost a year now that it does not believe that what it's doing in Yemen constitutes hostilities. It says we are engaging in the provision of arms and the provision of defense services. Until recently, this recently stopped, until recently they're providing mid-air refueling services. They say we give expert advice and we share intelligence information. However, none of this constitutes hostilities because U.S. forces are not in the battlefield, are not firing weapons are not otherwise engaging with any sort of enemy. They're just providing support to the Saudi-led coalition that is engaging in those activities. And you know this argument is debatable. The, the resolution itself adopts a different definition of hostilities that does reach these sorts of activities. But the Defense Department's position is, is a difficult one to just dismiss out of hand for the simple reason that the concept of hostilities that it's relying on is also reflected in various reporting requirements that the executive branch has been required to comply with for several years, several decades, under the War Powers Resolution. And several administrations have applied the same definition of hostilities that the Trump administration is applying now in regards to those reports, because they haven't been filing them for these sorts of activities. This doesn't mean that the executive branch is correct in its interpretation necessarily, but it does mean that its interpretation is one that's longstanding, uh, that has a lot of vested interest in it in the executive branch. It's probably going to be hard to dissuade them of. And on top of that, you know, if there could be a lawsuit over this, there could be some sort of litigation um, that could arise challenging the executive branch's interpretation. Courts have been resistant to intervening in those sorts of interbranch disputes. And until a court does direct the executive branch to change its interpretation, it's not clear that it will. Its, its longstanding interpretation will probably remain kind of the operational one. There are ways the sponsors of this resolution could try and fix this. One would be, as you mentioned, amending the resolution. In theory, at least, some maintain they could amend the resolutions to do more specific things, either by embracing a broader definition of hostilities or explicitly directing the end of intelligence sharing, the end of defense articles and services given to the Saudi-led coalition. The problem with that is that there's a concern that in doing so, it may disqualify the resolution from the specialized procedures that the War Powers Resolution provides for and therefore make it subject to filibusters and other sorts of obstructions that could prevent it from moving forward. That's why some folks have started looking for an alternative route to try and limit the uh, 
Yemen resolution, or, or pardon me, to try and take on uh, the Trump administration's position towards the Yemen conflict. Uh, that brings us to our second legislative proposal. And this is S3652, I should say, uh, which is often called the Menendez-Young bill. And this is a bill that does not operate through the War Powers Resolution, is just a freestanding piece of legislation that directs the executive branch to take several of the steps I just mentioned. So it cuts off or severely limits arms sales to Saudi Arabia uh, for the next two years. It would prohibit the use of funds for mid-air refueling, although that's a little bit of a moot point now. It also would impose certain sanctions on certain parties related to the Yemen conflict for human rights abuses or for not supporting the end of the conflict. Uh, and it would require a variety of reports of the executive branch. And so this resolution has now been introduced alongside the Senate resolution to try and say, well, if the War Powers Resolution won't work, let's just try and do this through main legislation and see if we can get the support. The difficulty there is that it's not clear they will be able to get the support they need to kind of move it past the Senate leadership, which remains opposed to these sorts of measures as far as we know, or at least it seems to, to take it any step towards enactment. And it's also not clear – and sorry, the debate around that now has centered on some of the terms of this legislation. Senator Corker, uh, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, had early on seemed open to moving forward a version of this bill, but has now fallen into a debate with the sponsors of this bill over how long some of these restrictions will last. So it's not clear that this bill is going to move out of committee uh, or really get a floor vote in the future at this point. But that's only the second of a number of legislative provisions. There's two other ones that we should look at here, right, Molly? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one thing that's really important to note about the question of taking this issue on through the regular legislative process um, is that we're also coming rapidly to the end of the Congress. Um, there are other things on Congress's agenda. There's the need to avoid uh, a partial government shutdown uh, before the uh, current resolution funding large parts of the federal government expires. There are other issues that Congress is looking to try and get done before the end of the Congress, things like perhaps criminal justice reform, the farm bill. Uh, so there's a, there's a kind of competing interest from other priorities for any potential uh, legislative action. Uh, you're right to note that the Senate Republican leadership hasn't been terribly enthusiastic about um, having votes on some of these issues. What's important to note about the procedures that uh, are used are being used for um, SJ Res 54 is that they give more power to rank and file members of the Senate to force a vote on something um, that they want to see a vote on. So it's I think one thing that's worth remembering is that part of why we're having this conversation at all is because there are a number of senators. Um, you mentioned uh, Senators Lee and Murphy and Sanders who are really willing to use their individual procedural rights to um, to advance this debate on the Senate floor. Um, as you mentioned, though, there are two other pieces of legislation um, that are kind of floating out there in the in the ether that uh, address these issues as well. And they're both um, much more symbolic than either of the two that we've talked about. Um, already. One of them is um, a sense of the Senate resolution that's being spearheaded largely by um, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina. Um, this is just a, a resolution that if passed by the Senate would basically state the Senate's position on uh, the issue of uh, U.S. involvement in the Saudi-led conflict in Yemen. It's called a sense of the Senate resolution for a reason, but it's it's non-binding. It's just the Senate using a little bit of its time to 
make a very low cost um, public statement on its collective position on a matter. The second symbolic piece of legislation we know a little bit less about, I think, because it's still kind of emerging from Capitol Hill and this is a resolution being identified with Chairman Corker that would also be largely symbolic in the degree to which it simply states the Senate's position, but reporting suggests that it would be done using a kind of legislative vehicle that would also have to be approved by the House and go to the president for his signature or veto. So this would be sort of one step up from a simple sense of the Senate resolution that only the Senate would need to act on. This would give the Senate sort of a little bit more weight behind the signal that it's sending and potentially force the House to take a position on the issue or give the House an opportunity to take a position on the issue and potentially send it to the White House for um, signature or veto. But again, we're still learning a little bit about that um, potential approach um, on the menu of options um, that the Senate might consider this week. Um, I mentioned the House a couple of times. I think it's probably worth mentioning a little bit about kind of the House politics on this issue. So in the past few days, we've also seen some reporting that suggests there's some renewed interest among House members in having some sort of vote on something related to Yemen. Um, It's not 100% clear what um, House members are pushing for here. But we do know uh, that much like Senate Republican leadership, House Republican leadership has not been terribly enthusiastic about having votes on uh, Yemen in that chamber. Um, Several weeks ago, House Republican leaders took um, some procedural steps to basically prevent um, a resolution generally similar to SJ Res 54 from being brought to the floor of the House under um, privileged procedures in the House. So, uh, you know, House leaders have more latitude to do that sort of thing than Senate leaders do by virtue of differences between the two chambers. And so the kind of bottom line there is that we know that um, House Republican leaders aren't terribly enthusiastic about doing anything on Yemen between now and the end of the year. And so the real question there would just be, is there sufficient, is there a sufficient push from House Republicans on their leadership to try and do something um, even symbolic on the issue between now and the end of the Congress? And I think we just don't have a great sense of whether that's true or not. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one other kind of technical note that kind of has been and lost a little bit around some of the churn on the House resolution, the Senate resolution, is that they actually rely on separate and different provisions of the War Powers resolution that provide for similar but different purposed expedited procedures along the lines that you discussed. So it's not clear to me that even if the House resolution, the leading ones kind of associated with Representative Ro Khanna, uh, has gotten a fair amount of debate, and this SJ Res 54, the Murphy Lee Sanders bill, if they both were passed, it's not clear to me that they would actually meet in the middle, if you will, and create uh, legislation that could then be presented to the president uh, because they are coming through these different statutory channels uh, and are slightly different purposed bills. So that kind of, I think, brings us to the question of what we should expect moving forward for these bills. We have a very limited time frame for Congress to get anything done. As you noted, we have they are under immense pressure on a number of different fronts to bring a number of major items to a close, including uh, funding bills that could close the government, uh, by, if not if finalized by December 21st, I think is the current cutoff. Just in time for Christmas. <laughs> uh, and so given that, you know, it's, it's a big question about what we should expect here. 
you know, Molly, what what are the next steps in terms of if any of these bills go forward um, that we can realistically see? Are they going to go forward on their own? Are they? What's the? How's the president going to respond? Could they get rolled into some of this other legislation? Yeah, I think that um, given the number of moving parts here, it's a little bit hard to know. Um, but I don't think there's terribly high likelihood that a piece of legislation with real substantive effects makes it through both chambers and goes to the White House for President Trump's signature or veto before the end of the Congress. I could be wrong. I've been wrong about these things before. But I think more of what we're seeing right now is senators and to some degree, House members really wanting um, some opportunity to go on the record on this issue and take a public facing step that indicates uh, how majorities get in the Senate, perhaps a large bipartisan majority, we will see, of uh, senators and House members feel about the conduct of the war in Yemen, about uh, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi all sorts of um, issues in this space. And so that's, I think, mostly what we're talking about here is um, efforts by members of both chambers to use the legislative process to send um, signals to take positions. Again, several of the, at least two of the things that we talked about in the context of the Senate are um, really just meant to be more symbolic measures and state the Senate's position. Um, they're not meant to necessarily actually change um, through legislative language the conduct of U.S. operations. They represent more just political pressure that I think is um, is higher uh, for a, a change in the way the U.S. is conducting its involvement um, than it was, you know, again, maybe six or nine months ago. And President Trump, is worth noting, has already said explicitly he will veto Certainly the Murphy Lee Sanders resolution. I'm not aware of an explicit statement, but it's reasonable to infer he would also likely veto the Menendez Young bill. Right. And on the um, on that veto threat, I think some of that comes from kind of substantive policy positions that are held by the administration. And then some of it also comes, and you know much more about this than I do, um, kind of the administration's and the presidency in general's position towards the War Powers Act and that kind of real institutional separation of powers conflict between the branches over whether what Congress wrote into um, that legislation is a proper assertion of congressional authority and that sort of thing. So I think the veto threat um, has more than one piece to it. Some of it's institutional. Some of it is policy based. And here, you know, we may encounter a situation where if a bill is enacted too close to when Congress is set to adjourn, the president won't even have to take action because if Congress adjourns before 10 days pass and he doesn't sign it, it is effectively pocket vetoed and it gets kind of nullified. And then when we get the new Congress, all these measures have to be picked back up again and the process has to start. And there's no guarantees that we're going to see the friendly audience, certainly on the Senate side, at least for these resolutions. The House side with the Democratic leadership seems likely to be more open to this. But on the Senate side, key committee leadership is turning over. Senator Corker, who's been fairly at least engaged on these issues and critical of the Trump administration, is leaving the Senate. Senator Reich, who's taking over the chairmanship of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is a much closer ally of the Trump administration, maybe less willing to entertain some of these measures. And those uh, leadership positions really have a lot of ability to define the agenda and determine what moves forward. So uh, there doesn't seem to me there's any guarantee that we're going to see these measures have the sorts of progress that we've seen them have the last few weeks in the new Congress, particularly on the Senate side. Right. Um, I think that's right. And I think, again, the important thing to take away from that is this idea that I think this is largely about um, kind of broader 
politics, um, signaling to certain audiences, um, both within and outside of the administration, where Congress is on the issue. Um, and then we may well, to the extent that we see um, congressional efforts in the new Congress, they may be less public. They may be more behind the scenes. We just don't know. Um, there's There'll be lots of new things happening on Capitol Hill come January, and Congress's role in uh, the conflict in Yemen will be one of many things to watch. All right. Well, Molly, thank you so much for sitting down. Well, thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Greg Johnson, Dan Byman, and Molly Reynolds for coming on the show. Check out our new online store, the only place to get Lawfare mugs, Lawfare t-shirts, Lawfare onesies, and the Lawfare Challenge coin at www.thelawfarestore.com. If you haven't yet, take a second to share the podcast on Facebook or Twitter and give us a rating or review wherever you found us. This podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howe, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>